after I found out that he his keys were at his house, his dogs were left in his house, his house was wide open, I knew he, he was gone. He would never, ever leave his home in that condition. So <clears throat> I just, I knew he was gone. It just, it just hit me that something really, really bad must have happened. From the Blade, you're listening to Code 18, Unsolved. This is Season 1, Episode 3, The Last Day. Yeah, Code 18 just references the radio code that we use when we describe a dead body. Bonk, Alvandero's sister, knew immediately what everyone else says they also knew. Alvin wasn't missing. He was gone, and he wasn't coming back. But no one has ever been able to explain why he disappeared, or how he may have died. They keep replaying his last day, looking for some clue as to what may have happened to him. We already know that on the day Alvin went missing, his friend Rocky Conley made two strange calls to 911. We know there was a stolen motorcycle found on Alvin's property. We know vaguely that Alvin fought with someone over that stolen motorcycle. And we know that his blood ultimately was found on the bike. But how do all of these parts fit together? One way to possibly find out is to retrace Alvin's final steps. They start at the Lost Peninsula Marina. July 27, 2017 was shaping up to be a typical day. Alvin Darrow spent the afternoon at the marina with his oldest son, Jeremy Darrow. Jeremy was staying there that week with his wife and three children. They own a large camper with a huge deck off the front door right next to their dock, 241. Alvin owns the other side, Dock 240. It's where they spent every summer together. And on this day, a Thursday, the two were hanging streamers on their boats in an attempt to keep the seagulls from perching on their property and making a mess. They'd been at it for hours, but they took a break for Alvin to run home. We ran out of streamers. That was the reason why he went home. Probably around 3.30 that afternoon. About 4.30s when, you know, he went missing. Jeremy said he knew his father planned to make a quick stop on his way home at either one of his rental properties or perhaps to pick up some food, but he was coming right back. The drive from the marina to Alvin's home takes about 15 minutes. Jeremy says his father would have taken Summit Street to the north end and then Manhattan Boulevard down to Area Drive and over to 327 Majestic Drive where he lived at the end of the cul-de-sac. And regardless of any stops Alvin may have made on the way, he did arrive home safely. Cell phone records and two witnesses confirm it. One of Alvin's friends, Peggy Descamps, even talked to him there. Peggy lived just around the corner from Alvin and the two were close. She knew him as Hopper. 
They talked daily, they rode motorcycles together, Peggy managed his cell phone account, and even had a key to his house so she could let the dogs out when he was away too long. She was on her way to work that day, but she saw Hopper pull into his drive, so she decided to stop and talk to him. She guessed the time was just before 4.30pm. She doesn't remember now what they talked about, but she remembers how the conversation ended. He was pulling in the driveway, so standing in the road and that. He said he was getting stuff for his boat to go back to the boat dock. He was trying to have Molly out there running around, trying to get stuff done. He said, I got to hurry up. They're waiting for me at the boat docks. Then I seen Tim coming over the fence. I said, I'm out of here because he looked crabby and he's always mean. So I said, I'm not even going to listen to it. And I left. Peggy admittedly didn't get along with Hopper's youngest son, Tim Darrow, who lived just across the yard in a home Hopper was buying on Dean Street. She says the father and son fought constantly, both verbally and physically. She couldn't stand their bickering. When Tim's with by his dad, it's terrible. He fights with him constantly, hits him, screams at him. I mean, screams out of control at him. It's just awful. So I'd just rather not be around both of them together. Peggy leaves and doesn't look back. But this makes Tim Darrow at least the second person who can confirm Alvin arrived home. They both confirmed that he was at his house somewhere between the, the four, 420, 4.30, between 4 and 4.30, somewhere in that time frame, he was at his house. Um, and then after that is when we don't have any more uh, no one has any more communication with him. What does Tim tell you about their interaction at the house? Um, I probably wouldn't want to really get into his statements just yet. Uh, I will say that he he does say that he's there. He confirms that he's there uh, in that time frame. We'll get into Tim's memory of the interaction in a later episode. For now, just know that Tim does see his dad and talks to him at the house. After that, there's no official indication that anything is wrong or anything unusual is going on until 7.05 p.m. when Rocky calls 911. Recall, Rocky was supposed to stop by Alvin's house that night to pick up money for a truck and to look at a turbocharged motorcycle that Alvin said he just had to see. Sometime after 5 p.m. after work, Rocky starts calling Alvin to see if it's okay to head over. No answer. He calls again. No answer. An hour goes by. No answer. Rocky decides to drive to Alvin's house. I met Rocky in front of that house on a bitterly cold day in January to see what he remembers about the day Alvin disappeared. Well, I mean, my truck, I pulled up pretty much identical to where my truck was is sitting right now. And I, and like my hair stood up when I seen Molly, his dog, which is, he, he never went anywhere without his dog. So Molly was curled up in that corner right there. And I walked up the sidewalk, right, you know, cause I just, you know, when I seen Molly, I was like, oh hell no, I, got, I knew something was really wrong. He couldn't find Alvin anywhere. Rocky says he tries calling Tim, who lives next door, to ask if he's seen Alvin. No answer. He calls Jeremy. 
Jeremy hasn't seen or heard from his father since he left the marina. So Rocky drives out to the marina, where he owns the dock next to the Darrows, to talk to Jeremy in person and get a better idea about what's going on. When Rocky arrives, he notices Jeremy is, quote, shook up. Jeremy tells him he called Tim to inquire about their dad, and Tim tells him some men on motorcycles showed up to the house with guns and chased their father away or may have kidnapped him. I asked Jeremy about that call with Tim. Walk me through this story that he tells you again. You call him, you say, you can't find your dad, you're going to call police, and he says, well, something happened? He says that the guys showed up that owned the bike, these bikers, and they threw my dad in a van and took off with him. When I questioned him a couple more times about it, then he said my dad might have got on another bike and took off. Then I questioned him more. My dad's not going to get on him. Another, his motorcycles are all in the garage. Then he said that he left before my dad left, so he don't know where he went. So I said, you left dad in the driveway with four bikers that have a, because he told me they had a gun. And he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't leave my dad in the parking lot or in the driveway. So the story just kept changing on where my dad, like, where when he physically left this backyard, where did my dad go? That's what I want. That's the answer I want. If this story sounds familiar to you, it should. It's similar to the one Rocky gave to 911. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I was driving by a few minutes ago, and there was a bunch of guys jumped out with guns right there. So I, did, I don't know the people, I just wanted to let you guys know that a bunch of people jumped out and I kept driving because, of course, I can't get involved. But it was, just, it was just going on. That story, Rocky says, came from Tim. A retelling of what Tim told Jeremy during that phone call at the marina. Only Rocky made it sound like the scene was currently unfolding in his attempt to hasten police's response to the house. Rocky says it's uncomfortable for him to call police an old habit carried over from growing up on Toledo's north side, an area that has long struggled with drugs, gangs, and poverty. But knowing neither Tim nor Jeremy had called 911 to report Alvin possibly being attacked by a group of men and feeling like something was seriously wrong, Rocky said he had to act. He drives back to the north end and parks outside Tim's house on Dean Street, where he calls 911. To him, this was an emergency. I don't call the cops. I've never called the cops on like anybody or nothing like that. You know, I'm from the Grain Street over here. Like none of that shakes me up. None of that at all. And he, like I said, that day shows you how how positive I was because I couldn't even go home. I mean, when he didn't answer my phone calls, and and then I just knew. I knew something was wrong. Jeremy also tries calling his father but the phone rings straight to voicemail, as if it's been shut off. So he also drives to his dad's house to hear from Tim again what happened. But Jeremy says he can't find Tim. He walks over to Tim's house and knocks on the door. No answer. Jeremy wouldn't talk to his brother again or see him until the next morning when he comes back to Alvin's house to report their father missing. And Tim says, Let me tell you about the stolen motorcycle.
Thomas Wiley's Harley-Davidson was still parked in Tim's garage the next day, July 28th. Tim showed it to Jeremy. He said he'd been fighting with his dad about the bike when the men with guns showed up and they scattered. In the official missing persons report, Jeremy summarizes this story for police. He says that Tim told him he and his father got into an argument when Alvin arrived home for more supplies for the boat. Tim said his father put a stolen motorcycle in his garage and he, quote, did not want anything to do with the stolen bike and did not know any of the details. Tim said some people were coming to look at the stolen motorcycle, but the guys who showed up had guns and were, quote, upset with Alvin because he had stolen one of their bikes. Tim said when they saw the guns, he and Alvin ran in different directions. He last saw his father fleeing the area on a motorcycle. He estimated the time around 7 p.m. Now, from the get-go, this story doesn't seem plausible to Jeremy. He says so in the police report, which reads, Jeremy stated that from the beginning, his brother's story did not add up. And Jeremy criticized that Tim's story kept changing, from seeing their father running away, to driving away on a motorcycle, or, as was mentioned in Tim's initial call to Jeremy at the marina, seeing Alvin shoved into a van and driven away. The whole situation didn't make sense, Jeremy told police. No one even seemed to know how the stolen motorcycle came to be there. Detective Goodlett said police still don't know. Do you know who stole that motorcycle? No. Do you know how it ended up in Tim's yard slash garage? No. And what does Tim say? How does Tim say it got there? He doesn't give us a very good explanation. Um, it's probably the best way to say that. Does that mean you don't want to share his version? Um, I think I don't know which version is correct. Um, it's just he's not he's not a hundred percent clear on how it got there. Tim seems to suggest that his dad somehow got the motorcycle and put it in his garage, which Alvin owned since he was buying the house. Tim was only renting it from his dad. Regardless of who put it there, though, neither of them report it being there. I'm not sure how <clears throat> how it really got there. If it was Tim, if it was Alvin, if it was somebody else. Um, because it would appear to me that the only reason it was recovered is because we were actually there. Nobody was calling in to say wow, there's a stolen motorcycle here, come get it. Mm -hmm. But Tim tells police that's exactly what they were fighting about when his dad arrived home from the marina that day. Tim was ready to tell everybody that his dad had a stolen motorcycle. He said he wanted that stolen motorcycle out of his garage, but his dad refused to move it, so they argued about it. And Tim says he has a video of it. The video doesn't actually show any fighting, but those who have watched it still say the behavior is odd. Tim recorded it. He wasn't excited in any way or 
didn't appear, you know, outraged. Um, it just appeared like he was just documenting the incident at that particular time. So saying what? Saying uh, this is a stolen motorcycle here's in my this, garage? Here's, here's Hopper, here's a stolen motorcycle, and here's me. It's a very short video. It's a 16-second video. Police wouldn't let me record any of the audio from it, but they did let me watch this video several times. It doesn't show a confrontation. In fact, Tim is laughing and smiling as he taunts his father about the stolen motorcycle. Alvin is seen pacing in the background. He never speaks, but Tim is heard saying, here's your bike. Alvin never responds verbally, but he lifts his hands to his head in apparent frustration or agitation and then holds them out to his side as if to say, what are you doing? Or why are you doing this? Tim chuckles and turns the camera on himself. Throughout the clip, the motorcycle is lying on its left side in the grass outside Tim's garage. Its handlebars are positioned next to the concrete driveway. The camera flips back again, and there's Alvin coming closer, his head down and what appears to be a black and mild cigar hanging out of his mouth. He paces in front of and then behind Tim, then, without a word, he steps toward the bike and leans down as if to grab its handlebars. The video goes black. Jeremy also saw this video the day after his father went missing. Tim showed it to him. Jeremy remembers thinking it was strange. Well, when I got there, Tim was, you know, explaining to me what happened showed me the video because the video, I heard the video in the video, it said Hopper Darrow's got a stolen motorcycle or something in my yard. My dad's not talking in the video, but it was weird that the video was even made. Why do you make a video like that? At no point during the video does Tim ask his dad to remove the motorcycle. Neither of them appear to be bleeding or hurt in any way, and there's no evidence from their interaction that they were really even fighting, verbally or physically. So how does Alvin's blood end up there? Recall that Thomas Wiley, who owns the motorcycle, was the first to notice the blood, even before police. He'd picked up the bike from the impound lot, brought it back to his house, pulled it into his garage, and was about to wash it when he saw tiny red droplets which, to him, seemed patterned as if sprayed on with a squirt bottle. It wasn't a lot of blood, he said, about a nosebleed's worth. In other words, it wasn't enough blood to explain why Alvin might be missing. Here's how Detective Goodlett describes it. I'll say this. It's significant that something happened, but there's not so much blood that you would say something something happened that with with all this blood evidence somebody is either seriously hurt or dead the evidence that we have could come from someone with a, a bloody nose detective goodlett said alvin's blood actually was found in two different locations on the gas tank of the stolen motorcycle and on a piece of plexiglass in tim's garage the problem is science can't confirm when the blood got there did blood fall on the glass at the same time as on the Harley? Different times? 
Alvin owned the garage, he'd been in there before. Could he have left blood previously? The blood on the bike has a narrower window. It had to have landed there sometime within the two days between when it was stolen and when Alvin goes missing. But that doesn't mean that it fell on the day Alvin went missing, or that it has any correlation to why he went missing. When police talked to Tim, they said he couldn't account for the blood either. Does Tim ever say in his conversations with the detective that his father, he saw his father bleeding on the day of his disappearance? No. Police were able to determine that on the day Alvin went missing, he sent Rocky a text from his cell phone at 4.15 p.m. Tim recorded that video of his father at 4.25 p.m. Rocky calls 911 at 7.05 p.m., about the same time Tim estimated men with guns chasing his father away. That narrows the window of when Alvin went missing to about 2 hours and 40 seconds. But remember, Rocky says by 5 p.m. when he got off work, Alvin already wasn't answering or returning his phone calls. That could mean the window is actually only about 35 minutes. 35 minutes of unknown. If we are to understand Alvin's disappearance, it seems important to better understand the crime that may have precipitated it. If the stolen motorcycle had anything to do with Alvin's disappearance, why did he have it in the first place? Was it in his character to steal or conceal stolen property? And what was his relationship like with his sons? That's next week. This remains an open investigation. If you have any information about this case or any other unsolved homicides, call Toledo Crime Stoppers at 419-255-1111. Callers can remain anonymous and there may be reward money. Help put this Code 18 to rest. And help spread the word about the podcast by giving us a five-star review and recommending us to your friends. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. You can also find the episodes and additional case information, including photos and videos, at ToledoBlade.com slash Code18. Code18 is reported and written by me, your host, Caitlin Durbin, for The Blade. Bill Kaplan is our producer, with original art and theme music by Danielle Gamble. Additional original music provided by Joel Roberts. Editing assistance comes from Blade editors Michael Walton, Michael Bryce, and Kim Bates. Hi everyone, this is Caitlin Durbin. I'm a Blade reporter and host of this podcast. If you're enjoying it, I invite you to subscribe to The Blade and support my colleagues in the reliable journalism that makes this work possible. The Blade has been reporting on Toledo's history since before the city itself was established. We are the newspaper of record. Go to ToledoBlade.com and click subscribe.